just so you know, you're not alone. You're not the only church that's going through Joshua with me. See, uh, there's Cascades Bible out uh, near Dulles, and they're going through it with me, too. I was talking to them about it. Actually, last weekend I was with them. Told them it was probably like the longest sermon series ever, you know. But we'll be in Joshua 9 today. So I, I grew up in Los Angeles, and we always kind of lived like downtown, you know, inner city area. When I was 12 years old, we moved out to the outskirts. And I mean to like the outskirts. So it was city, 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 and then desert beyond where our house was. And they were starting to build all these new developments there, which meant construction sites, which is better than Disneyland for a bunch of 12-year-old boys, you know? And so we decided that what we would do with, you know, these construction materials and the freedom that we had was we were going to create a jump ramp and see how high and how far we could jump with our bikes. And so we just kept getting larger and larger and finally we created a landing ramp and and so then at one point it was it was my turn to go and what we were doing is you would go up this hill and it went around a turn. And so when you were at the very top of this hill you couldn't even see the launch ramps, the jump ramps. So I got up to that top of the hill and I started racing down this hill and came around the turn. And I could see like everybody standing around intently watching me, which probably should have been a clue. And I hit the launch ramp and was flying through the air. And this is when I realized that my friends decided they, they were going to take our experimentation of how to jump a bike in a different direction. And they wanted to see if the launch ramp could be lower than the landing ramp. I know, it makes no sense, but to a 12-year-old, it's brilliant, right? And so, of course, I hit the, the landing ramp and, and wiped out, you know, scraped up, tears, the whole nine yards. The problem was, is I was at the top of the hill thinking that I knew what the situation was down at the bottom of the hill around the corner. When in reality, it was much different than I was expecting or I was anticipating. And Israel faces a very similar situation today in the passage that we're going to look at. They've just come off the defeating Ai. They defeated Jericho. They'd walked through the middle of the Jordan River. So they're kind of experiencing a bunch of success. And the rest of the land is aware of the success that they've been having. So you have all these other nations. They already know about Israel. They already know about Yahweh. They already know 40 years ago they destroyed Egypt's army. We know that they wandered in the wilderness and, and had some more battles there. We know that they've crossed over the Jordan now and that they've entered into our land. And so in the first two verses chapter 9, we see the response of these pagan nations in the promised land to Israel starting their invasion. And it says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they heard of this. And they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. 
So their grand plan is, we know everything that Israel has done. We know their entire history. We know who they are. We know who their God is. We know what kind of power this God, Yahweh, has. And their answer to that is, we all need to join together to form a coalition so that we can fight back against this invading army of Israel and this guy, Joshua, and their God, Yahweh. But there was a a few cities that looked at the situation and they said, no, you know what? Even if we all join together, even if we gang up and go against Israel, we're still going to lose. This is a losing proposition. It doesn't matter how many armies we get. It doesn't matter how well trained we are. It doesn't matter how many weapons we have. These people knew we're going to lose. And so instead of joining the coalition, they go about finding their safety in a different way. And this is where we're going to pick up in verse 3. And what's going to happen is Israel is going to be faced with a choice between two covenants. They're going to have a choice between two covenants, and they have to decide which one are we going to follow, which one are we going to listen to? Which one are we going to trust in? So let me go ahead and read verses 3 through 15 for us. It says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now, make a covenant with us. So the problem is, is that Israel was told, you're going to go in and you're going to conquer all the nations in the Promised Land. You're not allowed to make covenants with them. You're not allowed to make peace with them. I want you to go in and conquer these cities, these nations, these kings, and possess the land. You can make treaties with those that are distant, that are outside the borders of the Promised Land, but nobody within. Now the Gibeons, they were inside the Promised Land. They were not from outside. They were inside the land that was supposed to be conquered. And so they come with this whole Broadway spectacle, you could say, of of putting on these old worn-out clothes, getting old dried-out food, and they show up and they say, man, we've traveled from so far away because we heard about you, and we want to have a covenant of peace with you. Verse 7, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon 
and the king of Heshbon, and Og, and the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go and meet them, and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our house, as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins, they were new when we filled them. And behold, they've burst. And these garments and these sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So they present their case to Joshua. And spoiler alert, Joshua and the leaders of Israel are going to accept this, and they're going to make a covenant with these people. Which is wrong. They were not supposed to make a covenant with, this, with these people. So where did they go wrong? I mean, they asked the right questions. Where are you from? We can't make peace. Aren't you in our land? You know, what's your objective? They asked the right questions. They examined all the evidence. The evidence was convincing. It wasn't that they didn't ask the right questions, that they weren't suspicious enough, that they were sloppy in their investigations. The problem was they didn't have sight. They didn't have wisdom. You know, all they were looking at is what was in front of them, not recognizing that there's a whole spiritual world behind that. They accounted on their own wisdom, which was lacking, Verse 14 tells us where they went wrong. Verse 14 says, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. So if you take nothing else away from Joshua 9, remember verse 14, that they made a decision on their own wisdom, with their own sight, with their own knowledge, by their own choice, and it's going to fail because they didn't seek counsel from Yahweh. Remember, they're already under a covenant. They're under the covenant of Abraham, which has told them, I'm going to give you plenty of offspring. I'm going to make you this great nation. I'm going to give you the land. And I'm going to bless you and the rest of the world. They had that covenant. Then they get the covenant at Sinai where God lays out the law for them and lays out how they're supposed to act and how they're supposed to behave and who he is and how they're supposed to interact with him. I mean, understand, Israel was not like a normal government structure that we have today. They didn't have a president. They didn't have a Congress. They didn't have a house. They didn't have an earthly king. They didn't have any of those things. You could call them a theocracy. They had God as their leader, and then they were following him. They had the priests to be that intermediary between God and the people. They had the elders to help provide guidance. They had Joshua to be that figurehead to bring instructions and guidance. But Joshua was not the leader. The elders were not the leaders. They were not making strategical decisions for Israel. They were not making those types of decisions. Those came from God. But in this circumstance, everything seemed good. There's nothing to question. 
There's no doubt these are people from far away. God said we can make a covenant with people from far away. So we're assured we can make a covenant with them. But they were wrong. They needed to check with God before they moved forward with their decision. They had to choose between making a covenant with these people, these Gibeonites, or leaning into the covenant that God had made with them. God had said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to be your your leader. I'm going to give you instructions. Don't stray from them. Don't turn to the left or the right. Follow after me. And in this circumstance, they decided they didn't need the instructions of God. So then for us, if we bring that forward as an applicational issue, how do we deal with that? I mean, are we then to check in with God on every decision that we're going to make in our lives? So imagine this. You're driving down the road. You leave church here. You're driving down the road. The light in front of you turns red. Is this the time for you now as you're driving down the road, rapidly approaching the red light, to go ahead and close your eyes and enter prayer to ask God counsel, do I need to stop at the red light, God, or should I just go straight through it? No? Okay. What about this evening? You're getting ready to go to bed. 10.30, you're going to go to sleep. You need to stop and ask God, God, should I go to bed at 10.30? Should I go to bed at 11? Should I go at 11.30? I mean, are those the types of things when we say, you, know, you should be seeking God in all those situations. Is it all of even those types of things? So if you're asking those types of questions, and you're trying to itemize and list and make all these rules, then you're starting to miss the point of what God is trying to instill in Israel and then also instill in you. Yeah, there's going to be circumstances. You're approaching a red light. You stop at a red light because it's controlled by the government. The government says you need to stop here for your own safety. You've already agreed to follow those rules when you got your driver's license. You should have already worked through those issues back then, right? You're getting a driver's license. God, do I have to stop at red lights? Oh, okay, yes, I do. Okay, work through it at that time, not while you're driving down the road. But then, what about those other situations? You're going to move to a new city. You're going to take a new job. You're going to move to a new house. How many kids are you going to have? Are those divorced from God? No. They're not separate from God. Check in. God, what do I want to do? And he's may not give you a, here's manna from heaven, yeah, go forward type response, but shouldn't you be checking in with him if you're his people? If you're in covenant with God, and you are in the new covenant with God, before you go make other decisions, make other commitments, other promises, you check in with God because you're covenanted with him first and foremost. You see, God's desire is to change your heart and to live in a relationship with you. You, your responsibility is to recognize your lack of wisdom, your lack of sight, your weaknesses, the help that you need from God. When you start charging off on your own without God, you've lost sight of the weakness of your wisdom, the weakness of your sight, and the greatness of God's wisdom. So if you're in relationship, check in with him. Seek his will. 
So now they've made this covenant with the Gibeonites. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, their deception doesn't take long to be uncovered. Three days later, verse 16, the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached the cities on the third day. Now the cities were Gibeon, Cherepah, Beroth, and kirith Jerob. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. So they realize we've made a mistake. These are not foreign people. They're our neighbors. They're right next door. And so they go to their city. And now the people start to grumble and murmur against the leaders of Israel. Why did you put us into this covenant? Why would you make peace with these people that we're supposed to conquer? Why would you disobey what God told us to do? Your covenant with the Gibeonites is not legitimate, right? They lied to you. They deceived you. They came in with false pretenses. You don't need to honor that covenant. We should just break it and attack it because they lied to get it. That is our American way of thinking, right? Our American way of thinking is we're always looking for the loopholes and how to get ahead and, oh, I don't need to keep my promises. We make promises all the time that we don't keep. We even make, on paper, legitimate official promises that I will pay you back for this loan, and then we forsake it and run into bankruptcy. We break our promises constantly. So for us, it seems legitimate. They lied. It's an illegitimate contract. It's an illegitimate covenant. We don't need to keep to it. But the leaders of Israel rightly noted Verse 19, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So they've made this promise, and they understand that it's not just a promise that I made, of, hey, George, me, Jamie, I'll come over and mow your lawn for you on Saturdays. Okay? And then if I don't show up on some Saturday, sorry, George, uh, I'll get you next Saturday. Right? Broken my promise. Who have I put into dishonor at this point? The issue is that Joshua is not making just promises for himself when he covenants with the Gibeonites. He's doing it acting in his official capacity as representative of Israel for Yahweh. So the covenant with the Gibeonites is not just between Israel and them, but it's based upon Yahweh, his power, who he is, and his relationship with Israel. So for them to break that covenant is then bringing shame on Yahweh. Just imagine the situation that they're in right now. They're in the promised land. All the people in the promised land know about them, they know about Yahweh, and they know his power. What are they going to think about Yahweh if 
They know Gibeonites made a covenant with Yahweh, and now Israel's broken it. Yahweh is not trustworthy. That's what the rest of this world is going to look at and think. The Israelites didn't keep their covenant that they made under Yahweh, so Yahweh is not faithful and he's not promise-keeping. So they recognize that it's not right to sin to get out of sin, to break the covenant, sinning, to get out of the sin that they did before by making the covenant. You don't double down to make it right. So Israel realizes we've got a problem. But Joshua lays out a plan, I'm sure, handed down by Yahweh this time. And it says, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood, drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leader had said of them. You see, sometimes we're going to sin, we're going to make mistakes that are going to put us into bad situations, that are going to put us into difficult situations. And our first response is going to be, how do I get away from this? How do I get out of paying for the consequences of what I've done wrong? rather than how can I honor God through these circumstances? Is the best way for you to honor God by escaping the trials, consequences, tribulations that you're facing? Or is the best way to bring glory to God by relying on Him to guide you through them? You see, they had a choice between the two covenants covenant with these unknown people or honor your covenant to to Yahweh. They decide to make a covenant without checking with Yahweh but now they recognize their error. And instead of trying to escape the consequences they lean into Yahweh and trust that he'll work this out and they accept the consequences. And these consequences go, go both ways. For Israel, they've disobeyed And now these cities that could have been theirs are going to remain in somebody else's possession. For the Gibeonites, they go from being free cities under their own rule and direction to now they're enslaved to Israel to be woodcutters and drawers of water. So they've gone from being free, autonomous cities to now being enslaved to Israel be cutters of wood and drawers of water. So it's not really good for either side, but they live. Then you get to verses 22 through 27. It says, Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, this is the Gibeonites, why did you deceive us, saying that we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore, You are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for certainty that Yahweh your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all of the land and destroy all of the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, Behold, we are in your hand, whatever seems good 
and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. They did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, for the altar of Yahweh, to this day in the place that he should choose. So the Gibeonites escape with their lives, but will move forward living under a curse, being enslaved to be woodcutters and water carriers. And you think, man, that's a depressing ending, right? It doesn't work out all that great for the Gibeonites. Israel's messed up again. I mean, can we go two chapters at least without Israel making a mistake? Not yet. But you know what? These verses 22 through 27 are really the most hopeful and uplifting verses in this entire chapter. Because read it again. Let me read through it again and show you where the hope is. So Joshua summons them, asks them, why do you deceive us? And picking up in verse 24, Joshua says, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that Yahweh your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared for our lives. We knew we would be destroyed. We wanted to live. And now, behold, we're in your hand. Not great. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do, do to us. We know that we're cursed. Not great. We know we're going to be servants. But look at what it says here. Verse 27. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water who for the congregation and for the altar of Yahweh. Now stop and think about this for one moment. What chance did the Gibeonites ever have to not only mingle among the people of God, to live among the people of God, but to live and experience his tabernacle and his altar and to be able to serve at that altar to Yahweh? I mean, yeah, at first reading, this seems like, man, this is a terrible outcome for the Gibeonites. I know they get to live, but the rest of their life is, and their children and their grandchildren and on and on is going to be doomed and cursed to be enslaved. But they serve the people of God and they serve at the altar. And amazingly, their hearts and who they are, are transformed. And they move from being these people fostering a deceptive covenant with Israel to actually not only being part of the people of God, but acting better at times than the people of God. You see, as you go forward throughout history, you see that they chose not to join that coalition and that coalition of all those other kings would turn against the Gibeonites. And Israel protects them. And then as you, you move forward, they continue to, to uh, keep to the oath, keep to the covenant that they had made. And at some point, David moves the tabernacle to their city. So now, not only are they the servants for God in his altar, but the altar then is moved 
to their very city. So now the high priest and the altar and how everybody approaches God is going on through their city. David gathers a group of loyal, mighty men around him. One of those men is a Gibeonite. As he moves forward, Solomon, David's son, when he ascends to the throne, he goes and he makes burnt offerings at Gibeon. It's at Gibeon that he has his vision from God for what the rest of his rule is going to be like. Much later, 500 years before Christ, the Jews start coming back from exile. And in the list of the people that come back from exile, back to Jerusalem, are the names of these Gibeonites. And they're brought back to Jerusalem, and they work with Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. Now, you know whose name was not on the list of people that returned from exile? Plenty of Israelites. Plenty of Israelites were left in captivity. And in fact, most of the tribes of Israel are sent off into exile and never return. But the Gibeonites, these pagan, deceptive, false covenant-making people, thousands of years later, are part of God's people. And God honors them and brings them back and allows them to return from the exile and to help rebuild the wall. You see, the Gibeonites started out maybe with bad motivation, just protecting their life. But they understood who God was. They made the same confession as Rahab. Their motivation at the time was different. Rahab's confession was made out of faith. Theirs was made out of deceptive flattery. But it starts to change. They're being around the altar of the Lord. They're being around the people of God. They assimilate, and God accepts them in to be part of his people of God. So now, we have the same choice to make. We're faced with the same thing. You have two covenants that you get to choose from. Two covenants that you can decide to align yourself with. Are you going to align yourself with the new covenant started in Jeremiah, fulfilled by Christ, to remove your sin? Do you want to accept that covenant? Or are you going to chase the covenant that the world offers? An empty covenant. A covenant that is going to lead you to judgment? Or are you going to pursue the hope and the salvation that God offers you? I think that's what Joshua 9 shows for us. That as we go through our life, live like you're in a relationship with God. You say you're a Christian. You say you follow Christ. You say you worship God as your Father. If you're in a relationship with somebody, you commune with them. You talk with them. You, you get advice from them. As you move forward through your life, you rely on God to support you through your trials, through your circumstances, through the very consequences of your own sin. God works with you to sustain you through that. God can take a terrible situation, the most sinful person, the worst person in the world, and he can transform their hearts from these self-serving, 
deceptive, false covenant-making Gibeonites, and bring them to these people that would honor God, these people that would serve him through generation after generation. We close in prayer. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the salvation that you have offered to us. We are grateful for your covenant promises, your patience with us, that even though we, on a daily and often hourly basis, rebel and sin against you and fall and don't keep to the promises that we've made with you, we are grateful that you are patient, that you are delaying judgment, that you give us the time to grow, to work through this sanctification process, and then to share the work you've done in our lives with other people. We are grateful that you have treated us like the Gibeonites, that even though we were in rebellion, we didn't come to you always with the right motivations, that you have worked to conform us to you. You've brought us into your family, and that we can see your love in what you provide, and in your word, and in how we live. In Christ's name.